Sustainability. It's an easy concept to get behind. Who doesn't want a greener planet? The problem? Living sustainably can be inconvenient. Welcome to the Baylands Podcast, a conversation about the global and local strategies that make zero-carbon living achievable. We'll explore how sustainable living, in the form of intentionally designed communities, can actually enhance lifestyle, making life easier and more meaningful, while at the same time reducing our carbon footprint. An effective society is when old men plant trees for their grandchildren to have shade. The reason that we're doing this and having this plan is we want this plan to be replicable. This piece of land that we're dealing with is in every major city, every major metropolitan area, has exactly this, inner ring suburbs that have been skipped over because they were used for something else. We wanna show a model of how you go back and recapture that land for the benefit of society and for people to live there. It takes more thought. It takes more money. It takes more planning. But it's what's the right thing to do. I'm Linda Grasso. Our guest for this episode is Greg Vilkin, CEO of the Baylands Development Company, which is in the process of developing 700 acres for a new zero-carbon community called the Baylands. The property straddles San Francisco and San Mateo counties and will offer more than 5,000 homes and 8.5 million square feet of commercial space. Greg has spent the past four decades developing communities. To date, he's created inviting places to live and work for more than 100,000 people. I want to start with you describing the site for the Baylands. It's a super interesting and unique site. Yeah, so the, the reason we're looking at the Baylands is because of where it's located. It is 700 acres that everyone knows where it is because it is six miles north of the San Francisco International Airport and six miles south of downtown San Francisco. So it is extremely well located in the center of the Silicon Valley. And you ask, why is it there? Because it was literally land that was used for heavy industrial sources. So it's always been used, but it was the San Francisco municipal dump from the 1920s until 1968 on half of the property. And the other half of the property has been used by the Southern Pacific Railroad for 150 years. And so all the development leapfrogged this site and continued down the peninsula. But now you look at it and say, when you want to develop in a carbon efficient manner, that means you have to reuse land that already has existing regional infrastructure. So we already have a train stop. We already have uh, the light rail from San Francisco stop. We already have the freeway off ramp. So we already have the regional power station adjacent to our property. So you look at those major pieces of infrastructure that are tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars to create, and they already exist. And we have this hole in the donut that is a big piece of land that needs to be cleaned up, needs to have infrastructure added to it, sure, but otherwise is just its location makes it much more carbon efficient to develop rather than going further out and further greenfields. That proximity to San Francisco and on the way to Silicon Valley is interesting as well. Yeah, and when you look at it, it's actually only six miles to San Francisco and it's less than 20 miles 
to Palo Alto. But, you know, as we all know, in a traffic-driven world, miles don't equate to minutes. And so when you look at the train, the minutes are automatic, okay? It isn't like, oh, I go at this time and I gotta avoid traffic, or I go at that time. It's you get on the train and it's nine minutes to downtown San Francisco. Every single time, no matter how many times a day you do it or what time you do it. And if you go the other way and you wanna go down to the Meta campus, it's 30 minutes. And so if you look at all the jobs that exist between Palo Alto and San Francisco, it's the big chunk of the Silicon Valley. It's where Google is, it's where Apple is, it's where uh, Meta is, and it's also where the biotech hub for all of the United States is. That's all on the peninsula. All of those jobs exist. And then you have San Francisco at the other end where all of those jobs exist. So you're right in the middle and you have the train that connects it all. It's so crazy to me that they used that site for a trash dump for so many years. Well, you know, in the 20s, it was a very different world. And San Francisco saying, hey, where do I, where do I dump our trash? And when you look at it of what San Francisco was uh, 100 years ago, this was out of town. And this was land that was recaptured from the bay after the 1906 earthquake. They started filling in the bay. And that's how most of San Francisco grew and all, everything along the shore is all fill. So we're on a, on a major highway called the Bayshore Highway. Well, it's called the Bayshore Highway because that was the historic shore. So our entire site is on fill as is most of Bayside San Francisco and the, and the peninsula is all what used to be the bay and has been filled in over the last hundred years. So the Bayland's going to be what's called infill uh, development. Um, I want you to elaborate on that, exactly what that is and why it makes sense to build on unused, underutilized lands. The first thing is it's not unused land. It is previously used in an industrial sense. That's why it's called a brownfield. Brownfield development versus greenfield development. Greenfield development is it's, you know, it's parkland, it's nature, it's rolling hills, and typically it's further out. And that's what you definitely don't want to do, is take that land out of nature and put it into concrete. But what we're doing is we're taking land that is in worse condition and we're actually uh, healing the land. It's right now a scar. It's an open wound because it was heavy industrial land, which is necessary for a community. It's necessary for a growing city. Okay, and now we're saying, let's go back in and let's restore the land, restore the wetlands, restore the parks, take care of the contamination, and then make it so that it is a safe and beautiful place to live, and it's infill. When I hear uh, living on the side of a trash dump and contaminated land, I just kind of like re recoil. Um, there's a really complex and interesting way you're, you are in the midst of cleaning up this site. Share a little bit about it. Yeah, that's a great, it is a great question. And it's the number one question that we're solving is how do we make that land safe? And two things, one is no one will ever live on what used to be the trash dump. Okay, no one's ever gonna do that. We're gonna clean that up. There's a whole section in the California law about how to efficiently and safely restore that land. But that land will only be used for a solar farm, 
for battery location, for all of the infrastructure to support the housing, and for office development, okay? But there will never be anybody living on any of that land. Where people are gonna be living is what used to be the rail yards. And that is not heavily contaminated. That land has hydrocarbons and oil leakage and stuff like that that every urban site in America has, same things. So what we're doing is we're capping all of that, okay? And we're having it so that you're gonna live five feet above all of that. So all of that, to the extent that there is any contamination is completely segregated below where you live. And there's no danger between that. In fact, there are tens of thousands of sites all through California that have been affected the same way that are now put back safely into development. This is a very complicated process. I found it fascinating of cleaning up the soil. Um, actually leaving it, it's gonna be better than it was originally. That's correct. So the, the, the cleanup process is probably close to $500 million of investment. It's, it is a really big number, no question, okay? But if you took this site and you moved it out into the green fields, you'd have to build freeways to it, it would have no transit unless you built a new transit line. It has no sewer, it has no water, it has no electricity. And so for decades, all of that was paid for by the public. They ran new roads. They put new um, infrastructure out there on the public dime. And then there was this land that was adjacent to it that you drove to. The land was cheaper, you went further out, and houses that were 60 miles away cost less than houses that were 40 miles away and less than houses that were 20 miles away. This is a complete alternative to that. This is saying this is land that we're gonna spend the same relative amount of money, but it's in cleaning up and restoring the land that otherwise was underutilized. And this is not just a San Francisco phenomenon. This happens in every industrialized city in the country has the opportunity to do this, okay? And in our world of climate change, it's all about carbon sequestration. So we're not trying to be, oh, you can never use carbon. It's we need to say, we need to efficiently use carbon. And so how do we do that? That's the part that we think about all the time, and it's how we've planned the whole community. We talk about having radical sustainability Okay, but we do it through radical convenience. And as a community of our size, which will be 20,000 people who work there, 10,000 people who live there, we have scale of which we will do everything from composting, growing food in an in a institutional setting, having 70% of all of our electricity done by solar on site, and having the other 30% purchased from the grid that is already underutilized because there's so much solar in California that's produced, you need it in the evenings and it's produced during the day. It's funny, you know, most people I think these days, I can safely say, well, most people in California, um, they believe in sustainability. They want to support it. They know it's the right thing. Um, and then there gets to be like this point where they're like, mm, not going to do that. Everybody wants to do the right thing. Everybody wants to eat right, everybody wants to exercise, everybody wants to live a sustainable lifestyle, but it's inconvenient. And so you just do other things. People wanna do, there's so much stress in people's lives 
The last thing we want to do is add another layer of stress that says, you should do this. You should do that. We're not going to do any of that. What we're doing is saying, because of our scale, we're planning an electric community. We're planning to pick up all your trash and composting. We're planning to have an on-site grocery store that limits the use of single-use plastics. All right, we're planning all of these things so that when you move here, that's all you have to do is just move here and you make a few lifestyle changes that we make convenient for you to do and now you lower your carbon footprint. But 40% of your carbon footprint is what's called embedded carbon. It's where you live and where you work and how it was built. You can, we cannot reduce our overall carbon footprint without addressing that. That's how the buildings are operated. That's how much energy they use. That's how energy efficient the buildings are. It's how they're set up to begin with. So everything's set up for a 15 minute walk. Mm -hmm. You don't ever get in your car to go to the grocery. You don't get in your car to go to the ball fields. You don't get in your car to go walk in the park or walk on the mountain. All of that is designed around being a pedestrian and using other ways of mobility other than cars. So it's kind of like all about the pedestrian experience, not about the car experience. A hundred percent. So if you look at traditional developments in Europe and cities in the United States pre-World War II, okay, there was a sea change post-World War II. Post-World War II, people had started to move across California and specifically to California, move across the United States to California. And then they said, wow, look at this. There's all this land that is undeveloped. And at the same time, the Eisenhower administration said the way to protect the United States is to have a series of interstates that go everywhere. And it was originally designed so you could move tanks and equipment if you ever had to have a war in the United States. And so that's what the interstate system was all about. And it dispersed people all over the country. And one way to extend your 15 minutes was to have a car and have a freeway or a toll road that you could go 15 miles in 15 minutes because everybody got to drive at 60 miles an hour because there was no traffic. So the 15 minute city didn't change. It's, it just got bigger. And then as we've now gotten more and more traffic and more and more people, 15 miles is no longer 15 minutes. 15 miles could be an hour. And the other part of it is you have to spend all this carbon to get in a single, a single box and move that box, your car, from here to there and from there to here and here to there. Only 20% of the trips that you take are work-related. The other 80% of the trips are going to the grocery store, going to Target, going to drop your kids at the park, going to the doctor's office. That's 80% of your trips in and out of your car. That's what we're trying to eliminate. We're trying to create all of those trips with the ability to do that without a car. You either get on the light rail and go where you need to go, you get on the train, go where you need to go, or everything else is there for you that you walk to, or you take a scooter, or you take an e-bike, um, but it's all there. You know, we're seeing actually results from what a 15-minute city can, can do for the environment, how it can be kinder and gentler. Right. And with what happened in Paris, we've got the mayor of Paris basically creating the elements of a 15-minute city within a part of Paris. And I think over her tenure, carbon emissions have been reduced 20%. Yeah, so it, it, that's a great example. Paris was already set up as a 15-minute city. But what happened is 
you had sidewalks and then you had big roads and everyone was driving everywhere. So what they've started to do is flip the script and saying, we want you to take a means of transit other than a car. We want you to use bike lanes and we're gonna make them big and we're gonna make them easy to use and they're gonna make them safe. And so people said, well, that's a lot easier for me to get from here to there instead of taking a car. But right now, when the car is dominant and you have a little bike lane on the side and you have no separation between the bike lane and the car, I don't know about you, but I don't want to ride my bike on that. I'm counting on somebody who's texting and maybe not paying attention, not running me over. We're not saying nobody gets a car, okay? We're not one of these places that we're going to go here's how you have to live and you have to do this and you have to do that. that that's not actually how we're going to solve climate change. So th think of sustainability the same way. If we can fit sustainability into your life where you make alterations, there's no question. We want you to change and not just pick the plastic bag and the single-use cereal. But we're going to make it easy for you to go to the bulk bin and have your set of reusable jars and you fill it up and then we'll help you, we'll deliver it to your house. Same thing with everything that you're going to do in your house. To the extent that we can eliminate the single-use piece of trash that helps you, you know, get it from the store and make it convenient, you'll make that change because we're going to make it easy for you to do that. While we're on the subject of what the Baylands is not, and we're talking about the 15-minute city concept. I was bringing up the Baylands at a dinner party I was at recently, and I'm like, wow, it's going to be a 15-minute city, and na 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 And they brought up, uh, I think, what has been hailed as a 15-minute city, which is getting a lot of buzz right now, uh, the line in Saudi Arabia. Comments? Okay, so the line in Saudi Arabia, in my view, is exactly what you don't want to do. You're in the middle of nowhere, they're saying there's zero carbon, but they're not counting their embedded carbon. Just think of what it costs to go build that, where there's no resources, there's nothing, they're bringing everything out there, they're building everything. So to me, it's counterproductive, okay? You're saying you're zero carbon after you have manufactured everything that is 40% of the carbon footprint anyway. And then you're saying, okay, come now live here from where you go. There's no jobs. We're going to try and create jobs. We're going to do all this stuff. And Saudi Arabia is doing it because they're trying to get people to move from elsewhere to come to this kind of, you know, Eden that they're building in the middle of the desert. And you're very firm about delineating between true carbon neutrality and sort of fake carbon neutrality. So here's the dirty little secret. Okay, this is the billionaire who flies their own private jet with two people on it and three staff and says they're carbon neutral because they bought carbon offsets that are, you know, most likely in a developing country to get them to quit burning wood or coal. Okay? To me, th that's, that's smoke and mirrors. So when you look at all of these projects that say, we're carbon neutral, we're carbon zero, they're doing it through carbon credits. Not by doing the heavy lifting on the site that says you can actually affect that where you live and not have carbon somewhere else on the planet that you're saying, oh, I reduced my overall carbon. So when you look at the Baylands, when we're creating our energy, we've designed 90 acres of solar panels. We have a 55 acre on ground solar field that's over the top of the old landfill, a great reuse 
over previously contaminated land. We have 250 megawatts or one full gigawatt with four hours of battery storage that we're now, it's 10 acres of battery storage that is connected to the grid and is a help to the grid because in the Central Valley and everywhere else where you have all this solar, it's not used there. So it goes into the grid and electricity dissipates back into the ground if it's not used. The challenge with our electrical grid now is called the duck curve. That during the day, you're producing all this electricity from wind and from solar. And it goes into the grid, but the grid can't use it during the day because that's not when the load is. The load is in fact from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. People are getting home and they need this. So they turn the lights on, they turn the air conditioning on, all of that. So the way that that can be solved is you have a storage. And so we will fill these batteries and these batteries have four hours of use. And so they get loaded during the day when there's excess energy running through and is not used. And then they turn back on at four or five o'clock and they run through nine o'clock when there's no solar available. And so every day they charge up, every day they discharge, and you're now utilizing the solar to its full extent. We also are creating 70% of all of our own energy needs on site. Hmm. Share a little bit about um, the types of housing. I mean, what are we gonna see? What, what, how are people gonna live? So we have 5,400 units designed to be built. And to have a really successful community, it cannot be mono income, okay, where it's segregated because all you build is rich people housing. And that's typically what happens because the economics are so that it works more. We could make more money if we built all rich person housing because in the Bay Area, we don't have nearly enough housing. So we could do that, but it's not the right thing to do. So we've made the choice and the decision because in order to have a walkable city, you need to have housing for all that work in that city. So we don't have the grocery clerk, the barista, the daycare worker, okay? You know, the single elderly person on social security. Those folks all need to be part, they all are part of your community. We're trying to create from 450 square foot studio apartments to 2,400 square foot single family homes in the exact same community because that is how cities work. People don't need to say, oh, everybody needs to make the same income as I do and I'm completely segregated. It's a fallacy, all right? So the idea about good planning is that you plan for all of those folks to live in the same community, to share the same common values, and to live together. We also are agreeing to 15% of all of our housing is gonna be restricted to low and moderate income. Because again, if you don't subsidize that, you can't, those people can't afford to live there. So as a community value, we're saying we will subsidize that as part of the overall infrastructure cost. As you know, we lived in Manhattan Beach for, for almost a year, and you know we came from suburban sprawl, the San Fernando Valley, where you get into a car to do everything. And one of the things I liked about living in what is essentially a walkable city is the human connection. I enjoyed getting out and talking to the lady walking our dog. I got my coffee from the same place every day. I walked to the gym and said hello to people. I ran into people I knew. I didn't have to plan a date and drive an hour downtown to dinner. 
Um, and this is what is so interesting to me about the Baylands is it really fosters human connection, which I think is a really valuable part of life. So the expression that it takes a village, dot, dot, dot. It takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to support your lifestyle. Nobody does it on their own. What communities are about is mutual support. And the way that comes is a bunch of individual ways that when you put people together, they're a random connection that happen. When you create opportunities for people to say, hey, how you doing? When you're walking your dog, there's something that is demystifying about saying hello to someone else. You have an opportunity to say, oh, your dog is so cute. And then the conversation starts. If you want to be anonymous, don't move here. If you want to know your neighbors and you want to be involved in the community, that's who we want. That's who should move here. And the idea of having a walkable community is what fosters that. Instead of having individual backyards, which we have none, we have a series of open spaces that are open to all. And they go from small spaces to large spaces. But we're adding 157 acres of parks for the community and for the larger community that we're a part of. We're re-knitting back into South San Francisco, San Mateo, and Brisbane and pulling those communities together on what land used to be not utilized, and now will be 80 acres of restored wetlands, 157 acres of new parks and open space, and all knitted together through the community. So when you live there, you're never more than 100 yards from an open space. It seems like instead of focusing on creating your standard master plan, you guys are crafting a unique, a truly unique place. You know, one question I get asked all the time, I'm in my mid-60s. I've been doing this for a very long time. This is what I do. And this is what I've spent my life and my career learning how to do. Because what I do is not a profession, it's a trade. And you only do it through thousands of cycles of knowing what works, what doesn't work. An effective society is when old men plant trees for their grandchildren to have shade. The reason that we're doing this and having this plan is we want this plan to be replicable, okay? This piece of land that we're dealing with is in every major city, every major metropolitan area, has exactly this, inner ring suburbs that have been skipped over because they were used for something else, mostly industrial properties. We wanna show a model of how you go back and recapture that land for the benefit of society and for people to live there. It takes more thought. It takes more money. It takes more planning. But it's what's the right thing to do. Yeah, it's such a shift though, you know, because development is usually get in there, get it done, get out and make a profit. And this is so different. Well, I have to tell you, we are profit motivated. Don't get me wrong. But by having effective thought and figuring this out, we'll make as much or more money. But it's the double bottom line. We can do well by doing good, okay? And they're not exclusive principles. Well, I think what I was really touching on was that it's just a long-term plan. Of course it is. A lot of developments are like five years, six years, 10 years. I mean, I'm gonna talk about the, the, the time range of the Baylands. This is a generation, a generational project. Last time I did something like this, I was lucky enough in 1998 to be part of the team that acquired 
the old Stapleton International Airport in Denver, Colorado. It was exactly what we're doing on a bigger scale. We have 700 acres, that was 4,200 acres. But it was a scar in the middle of the city and they had replaced it with the new airport that was 25 miles out of town. So now they had this seven and a half square mile blight in the middle of the city. And so in 1998, we said, hey, there's a way to develop this based on these principles of new urbanism. The exact same principles we're applying today. And at that time, they had not been used yet at a big scale. So we applied them and used them at that scale. Stapleton became an international model for how infill development can be done. And it set the, it, it set the, the new standard for how everything then worked thereafter. So for me, this is now saying, okay, that was perfect for its time. And now we're saying we want to take that to a, a more, uh, a denser urban area than what Stapleton was and use the same principles and set a new standard for how to build during this era of climate change. Stapleton is now fully built out. 30,000 people live there. 10,000 people work there. And it is wonderful place to be and it made a ton of money. But it took longer, it took more thought, and the investments were different. And the same principles apply here. Even comparing it to what you did in, at Stapleton, the Baylands is larger in scope and scale. I want you to touch on that. Well, it is huge, and that's the thing that people can't kind of fathom. It's two miles from top to bottom, it's a whole series of neighborhoods. It's gonna be eight separate neighborhoods. It's gonna have a jobs housing balance of 20,000 jobs to 10,000 residents. So kind of two to one. Um, do we try to get to one to one? Yeah, we would, but we'd have to even go higher density than what we have now. Um, and, and that isn't what the local community wanted. The local community were part of a town called Brisbane. And Brisbane is all single family. Tight-knit, single-family, built between the 30s and the 60s. And, and that's our community. So we have to listen to our community and follow what they want us to join with them. And that was a little lower density than part of our land is in San Francisco. So in the San Francisco side, we're developing 1,700 units on 20 acres. And on the Brisbane side, we're developing 2,200 units on you know, about 200 acres. What kind of things can you do as a developer to make sure that the Baylands doesn't kind of stick out like a sore thumb? I mean, how do you integrate it into Brisbane, for example? So if you look at it, um, we have the streets that are connecting to us run right through our property and their extensions, same names, same streets come right through. The second thing is that you have to have a use, a balance of uses. So in the same neighborhoods are places to work, places to shop, places to recreate, and places to live in each neighborhood. If you live there, you'll do your shopping there, you'll see your doctors there, you'll um, go to the park there, your kids will play there, the kids will go to school there, all of that as a pedestrian. And then if you work somewhere else, you walk to the train station and you get on the train or you walk to the light rail station and you get on the light rail. And that connects you everywhere you need to go. So the train line currently runs from San Francisco to San Jose, and right. it's in the midst of being converted to electric. That's correct. So um, the community, being the larger California community, is spending $800 million 
electrifying the line from San Jose Deardon Station to 4th and King Street in San Francisco. And that entire line has new trains and is all being electrified. Right now it's heavy diesel. Pollutes, slow, noisy. Once you have electric, much less pollution because it's now all run electric. A lot of that electric is being done renewably. It is very quiet because the electric trains start up and stop very quickly and without noise or very little noise. Um, and it's non-polluting. So it goes and it's much faster. Electric trains can stop and start and get to full speed very quickly. Diesel takes time to ramp up, time to ramp down, so you have to limit the number of stops, which is the current Caltrain line. But for example, at our site, we have one stop an hour going north, one stop an hour going south. No one wants to wait an hour. It's not really effective transit. Okay, once the electrification will be done, which is by 2024, we'll have a stop every 15 minutes going north, a stop every 15 minutes going south. Just head to the train station, and if you're going north or south, the most you're gonna wait is 15 minutes. And if you time it right, you'll wait three, five minutes, and you'll go where you need to go. So whenever you build a big project, gosh, you just seem in your near a major metropolitan area, you know, as a developer, you know, you get people who just don't want it. They, they, there's always people who don't want a development and they fight it. And um, it just takes so much time to get plans approved. I mean, before you break ground, what is it, 20 years in, in this so, situation? So our company acquired this land, started acquiring it in 1989. And it took between 1980 and 2000 to assemble all the parcels. Our first development plan we submitted in 2004, so 20 years ago. We got the San Francisco section all approved by 2014, and we're now going, we're getting ready to go vertical. On the Brisbane section, we basically fought the community between 2014 and 2018, and in 2018, we cut the size of our project in half from what we were trying to get before, and we made a compromise with the city of Brisbane. Um, Actually, that's when I got there in 2018. That's the first thing I did is I said, look, that's not our job to enforce our will. It's our job to say we're joining the community. So how do we make this better for the community at large? There's a win-win in, in all development, but it isn't necessarily what the developer wanted. Okay, And so instead of us trying to force everything, we had to listen to our community and say, what are your concerns? What do we need to solve for you, because their life will change too. Whether they live there or not, their life changes. So we wanna make sure that we change that for the better. So we'll have shuttles that run all the way through the existing town because to solve traffic, because we're gonna add more jobs and more houses and that brings more traffic. So we have to take trips off the roads. And the way we do that is we make it easy for somebody who lives in the middle of Brisbane to take the shuttle to the train station and do what they need to do. Again, working on their 15-minute city to make it easier for them to commute. All of our parks and park system connect into Brisbane's park system and the regional park system. Right now, the Bay Trail runs all the way from Menlo Park at the end of the bay, all the way north of San Francisco. It stops on each side of our property, and there is no connection for that two miles. Well, we're creating that now connection for the two miles as part of taking this land and putting it back into um, to useful production. Why does the, the Bay Area need the Baylands? 
The Bay Area, San Francisco needs to create 82,000 new households in the next eight years. San Mateo has a bigger number in the next eight years. This is now part of California's plan to, uh, to affect their housing crisis. The homeless crisis we have, a big chunk of that is we don't have enough housing to support our people. Now, part of the reason is it's been really a good economic thing. If you're in the housing market and you own a house, making it harder to build the next house drives your value. And what it did is it moved people farther and farther and farther out and they have to commute in. Traffic's bad for everybody. It's worse for people who are in the mid-trades, the policemen, firemen, construction workers. They're forced to go live out in Tracy. That's a two and a half hour commute one way. And as a society, we have to give another option because we're paying that price. Whether you like it or not, we all pay the same price. We breathe the same air. We sit on the same freeways. And so there isn't, it isn't just somebody else's problem. Trying to communicate that to people who say, well, why do I want that in my backyard? I don't care. That's the part that's been difficult and very time consuming. And California is now, California is 3.5 million units short of housing its existing population. Half of America's shortage in housing is in California. And we have to solve that. And when we talk about the housing crisis and our needs in California, in San Francisco, a lot of those needs are, are for housing for single people. I mean, we're not right. families so much anymore like we were in the 50s and 60s. 23% of households have a school-aged children. Think about that. We always think about developing all this because we have all these kids running around. Well, in fact, you don't. You know, your kids are at home for a maximum of 20 years and then they're supposed to go off on their own. Some of our kids circle back and they're back with us for a little bit longer. But the reality is they live with us for a very short period of their time, you know, 20%, 25% of their lifetime. The rest of that time, they need somewhere else to live that's not kid-centric. And so when you build, you have to build for everyone in the community. So as I said, we're building 450 square foot studios for singles. We have one bedrooms, two bedrooms, three bedrooms, and four bedrooms, homes and apartments that will house everybody regardless of what their family size is to come together. One of the first things I thought of when I thought, oh, this major development built on infill just outside of San Francisco, I thought of that 6.9 earthquake in 1989. And I mean, I, I kind of the hair raised on my arms. Um, I think that's, that, that, that's something people are going to think of. How are you addressing that? That's a great question. California has the most advanced seismic code laws in the country. Um, we design everything to an 8.0 earthquake. And the way the seismic scale works is a 7.0 is 10 times stronger than a 6.9. So when you look at the scale and it goes up, an 8.0 is a, a world-shaking earthquake. And that's what we designed to. The earthquake that just happened in um, Turkey that had, I don't know, tens of thousands of deaths was a 7.6 earthquake. So we designed to one that is 40 times stronger than that. And new housing is designed to meet that standard so it doesn't fall down, it doesn't get damaged, and you will, an hour later, 
be back into doing what you're doing. You'll have to clean up, you'll have dishes broken, all of that stuff will happen, but your house will still be there. Your office building will still be there. It won't be in flames and it won't fall over. Previous to the codes that have been upped every time there was a major earthquake, there's a new code that comes out in California. The 1906 earthquake, no one knows because there was no Richter scale at that time, but the devastation was more from the fires than it was from the earthquake because it was all wood housing built next to each other with no sprinklers, with no ability to power the water through, and the water mains broke so you couldn't fight the fires. So laws were changed. The 1972 Northridge, the Silmar earthquake in 72, the Loma Prieta earthquake in 98, all of these earthquakes then had damages and then the laws were changed, then the new building codes were changed because they learned what could have happened and then they said, okay, now we're gonna change the codes. So the code we have today is very advanced so that um, it's built to withstand any of these damages. You know, we, we've talked so much about all the great pains and the thought and the time, you know, you've, you guys have really, you know, brought in so many different experts and tried to think of every aspect of it. Um, you've hired this fantastic firm in London that is specializes in um, creating unique places. Share a bit about that. So when we were putting together the vision, which is where we always start, um, we looked at the most, what we thought were the best places being designed and built. Um, and we found William Murray. And he is uh, a visionary and a placemaker, okay? And so we found him in London. We talked to him and his partner and his firm, and there are a series of architects and engineers and uh, designers who focus on urban design and urban planning, all in infill, never out in the suburbs, all about infill and about what they call, here we call it redevelopment. In Europe, they call it regeneration. And they have done some of the most unique projects that are regeneration of places. One we looked at very closely was called Battersea Station in London, which was the original coal-fired electric plants that ran all the electricity from 150 years into London that had to be redeveloped. And so they were the team that came in and have now redeveloped it. It's where Apple's European headquarters is, where thousands of housing units have been built, where the land's all cleaned up, where you know, it is the, the kind of place to gather for that part of, the, of, of North London. And other projects that they have done and we went to them and said, hey, we have this opportunity and we'd like to get your thoughts. So the first thing they did is they came out and they had more than 100 community meetings. Okay, because that's where we start. We are community developers, which means we join a community. We don't just build a project and leave. And so we really want to fit in with the community. So the first thing we did is said, look, we think we know what it is, but we want to get a fresh look. So they come in and they did over a hundred individual meetings, community meetings, where they just gathered data. Then we started a, a whole process that took nine months where we start saying, what is it that would be in a perfect world? What are people looking for? And we started listing all those things. Then we started listing all of our constraints. And the vision was one page. You know, we have experts in urban design. We have experts in architecture. 
Um, and we brought all of these people together to solve the problems, to create the community vision. And then we had probably, you know, 60, 70 people involved in these charrettes over a nine month period where we kept putting out our vision, altering it, figuring out what we then have to go solve. Then we'd go solve more stuff. We'd come back with a new vision and a new way of doing it. And we kept iterating as we went. You use the term like it's very conversation, but it's not really placemaking. What is that? It's a word we use to describe how it feels to go to a place. So it's really just some places you go to and you go, wow, this just feels nice. But you can't exactly describe why, because it's a mix of uses, architecture, landscape. And landscape is what we call just the negative architecture. It's the space between buildings. It's the space that is the land that you feel when you're in that. And that's what it's all about. The buildings is what most architects look at and oh, make it look pretty, et cetera. But that's not where people live. They live in the spaces between. So placemaking is the opposite of architecture. Placemaking is saying, how do we create these open spaces, these community spaces that people wanna be in and then we frame it with the buildings. It's almost to me like the more humanistic aspects of developing, you know? Absolutely. It's people-centric, not building-centric. And that's the difference. Architects, they're artists. They deal with how do we make the building look like the greatest piece of art. Placemakers look at it and say, okay, here are a bunch of people, and what do they need to have their lives be more successful, more livable, more convenient, more of a place they want to go. As I understand it, it's, it's you know, 20, 25 years of planning, 20, 25 years of building. We're talking about a 50-year span. I want you to take us to the end of that 50 years, and I want you to sort of take a stab at what year that's going to be and what it's going to look like. So the specific plan is a 400-page document that we've created that says, here's the plan, here's how it gets built out over time, and here are the design guidelines, not designs, the design guidelines that will protect the vision that we have that the community also shares with what wants to be done. I won't be here for the full development of this, okay? But we've created these guidelines, so whoever's sitting in my chair, whoever's in the community chair, says, hey, what were the guidelines that these people were thinking about? And we've created the ability so that it'll change over time based on who the community is. So this isn't a static document. This is a living community that, candidly, the first people that live, that move there, are going to be, are going to be moving in because of the community we created as the developers. But after that, it's not ours anymore. It's the communities, and they'll give us input about what they want to see in the next iteration of what it is. What we won't do is we've seen a number of times, it's a funny uh, saying that someone's moving into their brand new house, and the first thing they do is they put up a no on development sign in their front yard. Okay, that's called nimbyism, not in my backyard. And it's like people forget that the reason they have a home is because somebody built it which impacted somebody else who already lived there. So if, if we didn't have that creation, then no one lives anywhere. So you can't be that entitled and spoiled to say, once I'm here, 
that's it, man, let's roll up the sidewalk behind me. That will not happen. And that's what we've gone through in this planning process to say, as you move in, as it goes over time, you as a new resident know what's gonna be built. You know that it'll never be more than the number of units that was approved. You know that here's the number of offices and all of that you can rest comfortably that all of that is then not gonna change radically. Now, it'll get built over time and it will morph because the community will change. And how it looks, that will change over time as well. So Greg, just from a personal standpoint, is your hope more that this, this that the Baylands gets complete and it's a vibrant community and it's successful financially? Or do you have, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, you answer this, do you have a, a another kind of hope that you're holding here that you hope it, it's something that is a, a case study that's successful, that will be replicated yeah, throughout yeah. the country, throughout the world? Yeah, so it's both, okay? My job is, for a project like this, this is billions of dollars of capital. All of that money comes from the same place. It's people's savings, people's future retirement. That's where institutional capital comes from. It isn't just made out of the sky. So I have to be able to deliver institutional returns, return on investment. It, without that, nothing happens. So if we're too altruistic and we're too pie in the sky that can't happen, then we don't have any impact. If we're on the other side and it's just about the money, then the bar is too low. And if it's just about the money, we won't build the right thing. So we're somewhere in between of saying, is there the right nexus between we do something that's good for the environment, that doesn't make it worse, makes it better than if we weren't here, and at the same time, does it in a way that we make money? And, and so that's what we're committed to doing. Otherwise, it all there's nothing. 100% of zero is still zero. And so we're, we live in the real realistic world and there's a balance that we have to do and have to meet. So with that, there will be some learnings, key learnings that come out of this. Like the first one is on the electrical. We're creating something that's never existed before, which is a electric vehicle enabled microgrid. What it really means is we're taking electric cars and we're utilizing the battery that's in the electric car as part of our storage system. And so when we have excess energy being created by our solar panels, it goes in to feed our batteries in the cars. And that also means that those cars can now be driven around and used. So if you wanna move here and not have a car and give up your car and save that thousand bucks a month between your car payment and your insurance payment and your maintenance, and say, great, I don't need a car. Because when I need to go run my kids to, you know, a music lesson or a ball field that's just not on the property, or I need to go to the doctor, or I wanna to go to Costco and shop in bulk, all of those things are totally appropriate and you need a car to do that, mm -hmm. okay? But you don't have to now spend a thousand bucks a month so that you, one time a day you need a car, you have access to it. So no one needs a car. They need access to transportation that can take them where they need to go. So by us creating a way, again, solving problems of saying, Hey, instead of having electric cars that now are a burden to the grid, which is called single directional charging. Single directional charging means that you charge the car up, but you can't take the energy from the car to go back into the grid. All of the cars that will be on site, we hope to be bi-directional charging. And so bi-directional means that 
what your car is, is a movable battery. And so you can load it up and then you can take the energy back out during those peak periods. Okay, and then you can charge it up overnight and it's ready to go the next day. So we're gonna have car barns throughout the property that if you need a car, you just walk down, it's probably a block to the car barn and you check the car out and then you go drive and do what you need to do and you drop your groceries or whatever it is and then you go back and you put the car back in the car barn and you got charged for an hour, hour and a half, two hours of time for the car. What will the Baylands look like when it's completely built out from a visual standpoint? So that's a great question. So we have some things that we're trying to protect from, mainly the train. No one wants to live along the train. The train, even though it's electric and it won't be polluting, it's still a noisy industrial thing that goes on. So the whole design is all along the train is where we have our parking. We have two levels of parking along the train from the beginning to the end. That creates the buffer from the rest of the community. So you won't hear it. Noise travels horizontally. It's line of sight. So if we can create a 20 foot buffer where the train goes by, then it's there and it's necessary, but you don't have to see it. And we need parking for the community, right? Much less than what current standards are, but we're still creating 11,000 parking spaces for this big community. And we've planned it all so that the cars never go through the community. The cars go on surface roads that are in the back and connect along where the train is. We have an entire road network behind the buildings, between the buildings and the train, that then enter the parking lots and parking structures from that side. And then on top of those structures, we now have a series of high-rise buildings that then take advantage of the view out to the bay and the view back to the San Bruno Mountains. And we're very cognizant to be, they will be taller point towers spread apart by at least 150 feet because we have a whole community that enjoys the view of the bay. It seems like the Baylands is a chance for us, all of us by embracing it. It's a chance for us to be good stewards of not just our planet, but of our future. Our community. It's, it's what we're looking for at the Baylands. The first people who moved there, you know, some, some like to call them pioneers. I don't think of it that way. They're people who are stewards of the community. They're moving in and saying, I want to have some direction over where I live and what it's going to be like. And, and the way to do that is when you move in and, you're, and we're just part of the community, we're the first part, the people who are designing this. But as I said, once the first people move in, it's not ours anymore. And our job was to facilitate for the community with the expertise that we've gained on how to make things happen. So what we're looking for is people who are gonna move here with the greater community in mind and their own living style in mind and saying, you know, I really wanna do this thing and I wanna make that part of the community. So we're looking for community stewards to do two things, make it really work for them because otherwise you can't build it and also make it work for their next generation and the generation after that. So to be good stewards of the land. Yeah, there's some uh, social environmental uh, responsibility there. We all, have, we all have a responsibility for future generations. Whether we like it or we don't, we're here for a short period of time in a geologic sense, but what we build outlasts us by many generations. 
And so there's a saying that says that we build the buildings to then build our lives. Okay, so we have to be careful about what we do because that then lives on and moves on. The places we create, the buildings we create, the mistakes we make all have long-term consequences. So let's really think about them in advance. Listen, we are not the be-all and end-all of thought. We're, we're thought um, initiators, hopefully thought leaders, but not. We're thought initiators. Our job is to ask difficult questions, throw it out there, and smarter people than me are going to need to answer that. So again, when we're saying stewards, we're looking for people who want to help solve these problems to join our movement, join our community, okay, and then just, you know, pick up part of the wheel and carry on um, what's the growth for all of us.